Well, good morning, everyone. It's great privilege to be able to open God's Word together. We're in this awesome epic, uh, the book of Joshua and up to chapter 5, and it's hard to think, okay, God, what have you got to say to us in this? Uh, But we're committed as a church uh, to let the Bible speak to us, and I've really enjoyed getting into this, and I hope as we slow down too and we look, and I think God has a lot to say for us. We find ourselves in a moment of history where there's a lot of disruption and a lot of transitions. If you look around you, kind of globally at a geopolitical level, there seems to be a lot of disruption. Think about the economy, think about health and pandemics uh, and and power balances that are are changing. Uh, But even at a personal level, I wonder if you've experienced this just disruption and transition in your lives. I mean, the fact that you're all wearing a mask as you look at me is a disruption. Who would have have thought that we'd be in these things called Zoom meetings? And yet here we are, we find ourselves in these moments of transition. And of course, within this church, uh, we're in a season of disruption and transition uh, as we farewell our, our senior pastor team on in a few weeks. And what disruption and transitions can do is it puts strain on what I've called the identity frame. The identity frame. Uh, I've defined it like this. How we define identity, answering the question, who am I, becomes the frame by which we understand and interpret the world around us. So a frame is like, think about the frame, the way we see the world, but also a frame in the sense of that, that structure that holds everything up. I think it's so central. The answering that question, who am I, identity, becomes the frame by which we understand and interpret the world around us. Whether that's interpreting success or or trying to make sense of suffering or our struggles or even defining who our enemies are and who our allies are. Identity, it's so central. So what are some of these identity frames? I mean, if we were to believe Disney, uh, it's expressive individualism. We find ourselves, that inner truth inside and those feelings and desires and we be true to that and we express them and that's who we are. Or maybe if we were to define ourselves by patriotism, we're citizens of a country and we have rights and comforts that need to be afforded to us. That's who we are. Or maybe we define ourselves as a justice warrior and it's about being politically correct. That's how we define our identity. Or maybe just simply for many of us, it's just this careerism that we find our, who we are in what we do. Our, our career defines us. Man, this is so hard as a pastor that I can wrap who I am and, and my identity in what I'm doing and, and, and who I am as a pastor. And when that's going well, I feel good. And when that's going bad, I feel bad. How we define identity shapes the way that we process the world around us. But do you know what the trouble is in our current moment and these crises that we're encountering is that these identity frames are failing under the mounting strain and pressures and we're seeing this erosion that's leading to insecurities and divisions and hatred. And for many of us, and I wonder if this is you right now, a spiritual dryness. That our identity frame is being shaken up in this moment. We just find ourselves confused and searching. 
As we come to this passage in Joshua chapter 5, the Israelites find themselves with an identity crisis. They're at this point of transition. They were slaves in Egypt. They were rescued out of there. They were people of the wilderness, wanderers, and now they find themselves on the doorstep of the promised land. It's a moment of transition. But it's also a moment of disruption and anxiety. The prospect of these battles and the struggles that are in front of them. And they're faced with this question, how are they going to see themselves? What is going to be their identity frame? And we're going to see they needed a realignment, a recommitment to who they are, to who God had called them to be. And that's what I think we need in this moment. Who are we? What are we living for? What makes us who we are? What defines our identity? How are we going to live? So I want to stop and I want us to pray and let's ask God. We believe it's his word and we want him to speak. So would you pray with me? Lord, we just want to slow down in this moment and invite you to be in this place, to speak to our hearts in power through your word. And what could be more important than answering this question of who am I? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've shown it. Thank you for this amazing, incredible history that we see your faithfulness. So, Lord, speak now. We want to listen to you. Soften our hearts to you. We just humble ourselves before you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll have that passage in front of you, if you can, uh, to Joshua chapter 5. At this point, they've made it. The Israelites, this long journey up until this point. Uh, they've just crossed the Jordan. That's the river we learned last week. And they're, they're stepping into Canaan. So we read in verse 1. Now, when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts, and they're talking about the kings, the kings' hearts melted in fear and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. Brilliant. The tables had turned. If you remember back, as the Israelites, the first time they came to this point, they were the ones who had hearts melting in fear and they saw the Canaanites and described them as giants and they thought, we can't do this. They turned their backs, they didn't trust God and that's what led them to 40 years in the wilderness. And here they are again. This time, it's the Canaanites whose hearts are melting. What a good and awesome place. What a good sign when you're about to fight. This would have been the opportune time to attack well, you'd think so, but God has a different plan. He does something surprising. He stops them, and we read it before, and he gets them circumcised. I just want to pause for a minute and emphasize what a terribly colossal battle strategy this was, <laughs> uh, exposing them to attack. Imagine for a moment uh, you are about to play a football match, and you're the favorite to win. It's a shoo-in. You're ready to go. Uh, but before the first bounce, instead you turn around to your teammate and you kick him in, in between the legs. Like, it's a terrible battle strategy and a significant risk. And so we just need to stop here and ask the question, okay, why? Why? Well, the Israelites needed to know whose the battle was. It wasn't their battle to fight. It was God's. It was God's battle. And did the Israelites really trust God to deliver them? 
We need to zoom out and look at the whole book of Joshua because the message of Joshua is that God fights for Israel. So we see this here. If you go to chapter 23, we, we read at the end of this journey, and Joshua, they're in the land. He says in verse 2 there, I'm now old and well advanced in years, and you've seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. If you skip down to verse 10, again, he, he just emphasizes this. He says, one man of you puts to flight a thousand since it is the Lord your God who fights for you just as he promised you. Throughout the book of Joshua, again and again and again, we see that it is God's battle. It was God's purposes. It's God's victory, God's deliverance. The battle belongs to God. The battle belongs to God. Is this the frame that you are living in right now? What you are going through, the, the transitions, the disruptions, the trials, it's not your fight. It's God's. His purposes, His victory. So we're going to ask ourselves, what are we trusting in? What are we putting our hope in? As we go through sickness, as we try and comprehend that difficult situation at work, or that relationship breakdown, or that addiction that you can't seem to overcome, you see, we're not laboring with the weapons of this world. Our, our hope is not in political power. Our hope's not in corporate management strategy. It's not in self-help. It's not in religiosity and religion and doing good. Our hope and our faith it's in God that the battle belongs to Him. In radical counterformation to the world, Jesus, we believe, as the Son of God, is shaping us with a new identity, a different way of seeing the world. So we read in Galatians chapter 2, as Paul writes to the, uh, to the church, he says, I live by faith in the Son of God. So we believe that the battle belongs to God. We live by faith in Him. Do you trust Him? Do you trust God with your future? For the Israelites, it came back to their identity frame, their identity. You see, if you know the story of the Israelites, they were called to be different to the nations around them. You see, God had set them apart. He called out Abraham. And he said, I'm going to make a nation through you. And through you, through your offspring, all the nations of the world would be blessed. This was God's rescue plan. His mission to redeem and save the world would be through these people, through the offspring of Abraham. That was their identity. And we're going to see they had this ancient covenant symbol that would remind them who they were called to be. So we see that the, the battle belongs to God, but we're going to see the people belong to God. So if you turn to Joshua chapter 5, verse 2, and to verse 7, I'm just going to summarize what's happening here. The narrator, he explains and he gives a bit of a recap for us. Uh, the generation uh, who had come out of slavery, out of Egypt, like I said before, they refused to trust God and so God led them on this journey through the wilderness for 40 years. And in that time, a new generation is born. A new, a new generation is raised up and a new leadership, even in Joshua. 
and they're sitting at the foot of the promised land. And there comes this moment where they're faced with an identity crisis. They were slaves, they were wanderers, but now who are they going to be? Are they going to continue to be the people of the covenant? Because as we read, they hadn't done this, they hadn't circumcised. Were they going to remember God's promise and remember their identity? So two symbols that would reframe their identity, circumcision and Passover that we saw. Now, it's probably not the sermon you expected to be hearing this morning, uh, talking about circumcision. Uh, I envisioned a lot of legs suddenly being crossed when we started reading verse 2, get your knives out. Uh, But in context, circumcision is a really important covenant symbol. And if you read through all of the Bible, it, it seems to come up a bit. And it has an important meaning, important fulfillment, as we're going to see. So why circumcision? Let me explain a few things. Well, simply put, uh, whenever God makes promises in the Bible, frequently they are attached to signs. So when God promises to Noah uh, not to flood the earth again, there's this sign of the rainbow. We see in the New Testament with the Lord's Supper as a reminder, as a sign of what Jesus did. Or baptism, another new covenant symbol that represents our identity as resurrecting to new life with Jesus. These were covenant symbols. And so Sky Jatani writes this, Once we perceive this covenant pattern in the Bible, The Lord's command to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17 to circumcise doesn't seem as random or bizarre. Remember, the Lord promised an old man, that's Abraham, who had no offspring, that he would become the father of countless descendants. His covenant with Abraham was to give him children. Therefore, the sign of this covenant was a permanent mark on the part of his body necessary for reproduction. What's more, a circumcision was practiced by Abraham's descendants for generations to come. It would serve as a perpetual reminder of God's faithfulness, a sign that the Lord keeps his promises. And he continues, Skrajatani says, more than just a conspicuous bit of male body augmentation, it served as a powerful symbol of God's covenant with Israel and one's inclusion in God's covenant community. So sitting on the edge of the promised land, as they're bracing for battle, the Israelites needed to remember this. And this covenant sign signified this. They were God's chosen people, and God would be true to his promises. Remember this promise that through this nation, all the nations of the world would be blessed, and God's rescue plan would be fulfilled. So that's circumcision. What about Passover? Uh, after the people, they uh, circumcised. They then, in verse 10 to 12, there we read that they practiced Passover, uh, an even more powerful and perhaps less painful symbol. So why, why Passover? Uh, if you know the story, the Israelites, they'd been spared the judgment of God upon Egypt as they sacrificed a lamb and painted the door frames with its blood. And so... Uh, They were rescued out of slavery. As God's judgment came upon Egypt, uh, they were spared because the judgment went on the land. And so every year, the Israelites would celebrate a meal together, remembering their slavery and remembering God's redemption. 
and within the meal itself held these symbols of meaning. And so they'd have these bitter herbs and, and it reminded them of the bitterness of slavery of their old life. And as they'd sacrifice a lamb and, and eat the roast lamb at Passover, they'd remember that it was the lamb that was sacrificed in their place. These symbols had power. And so the Israelites on the edge of the promised land, they've stopped and they've remembered that they're not slaves anymore. That's not who they are. That self is God. God's judgment has passed over them. He's rescued them. He's redeemed them. He's purchased them out as his people. There's a power of symbols that speak deeply to identity. But you know what? Symbols are not just an ancient Eastern thing. If you think about today, just take for a moment and consider our culture's obsession with tattoos. They, they, they add value to, to meaning and identity of who we are. Or think about the importance of branding and brands. If I was to drive in and roll up in this old bomb of a car, you wouldn't think much of it. But if I said that was an old Ford Impala or a, or a Ferrari, you'd be like, whoa, that's cool. <laughs> Maybe some of you might. I don't know. I wouldn't really care. But uh, we understand the value of branding of symbols. Symbols have power to define identity. So through the symbols of circumcision and Passover, the Israelites, they would have this realignment of identity, a realignment of who they are. Circumcision identified them, we are God's chosen people. And the Passover reminded them, we are God's redeemed people. That's who we are. This is the reality, that although they face these external threats, as they're facing these battles in front of them, the real battle for them was the internal battle, the internal decision of whose are we going to be, what is going to define us, who are we? And I wonder if you recognize this battle for yourself, that yeah, we've got stuff in our lives, and we've got battles and things going on, but really the battle is going to be internal. How are you going to see these, how are you going to approach these things? How are you going to know who you are in this moment? It's not external, it's internal. What's going to define you? So I want to just take a minute and just bring this closer to home for us. Because what does it mean for us today to identify ourselves in God? Because uh, the New Testament speaks at length to why no longer uh, we're required under Jewish law to be circumcised. So what does this mean for us? How do we relate this to our identity? How is this relevant? Well, these external symbols point to something that is now an internal reality in Jesus. See, God's mission to redeem the world would be fulfilled in Jesus, a descendant of Abraham, so that, as the Bible says, because of Jesus, because of what Jesus did, he invites all those who would believe in him to join this people so that we are now all children of Abraham, children of God's promises through faith in him. We see this in Galatians 3 verse 7. See, we were separated from God. That was our reality. Yet God in his love and his mercy never gave up on people. But he would pursue us in love. And part of his mission plan was his son, Jesus. God in the flesh who would come. And he would die on the cross for us so that the judgment of God would go on him, our sacrificial lamb. Again, a fulfillment of this Passover symbolism. Jesus was the lamb of God who takes the sins 
takes away the sins of the world. And what he did in that moment was he would bring people back to himself, those who would put their faith in him. He would draw to himself and he would fill us with his spirit, giving us a new heart. And the Bible had prophesied and spoke to this, that what God would do was that we couldn't do on the outside. It was all just symbols, but we'd always fail on the outside. We needed a whole new system inside, a new identity, a new heart. The Bible actually speaks of a circumcision of the heart. It would be internal. That Something different would happen inside of us. We would become a new person, or put it another way, a new identity. A new identity. So we read in Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's my new identity. And now I can say with resolve in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is who we are. This is our new identity. This is how we see this fulfillment, that we are now God's chosen people for those who believe. We are now God's redeemed people, rescued out of slavery from our sin and our old self. This is our new identity. We're purchased by God. He loves us. He's welcomed us in. He's given us a new heart, a new identity as his beloved people, and nothing can take that away. It's nothing by what we did, but purely by what he did, what God did. And so like the Israelites, we need this identity realignment. And I wonder if you're with us today and you're not a Christian and you're working this out and trying to answer this question of who am I? I want to tell you that Jesus loves you. That the creator God had a plan to rescue the world. And that included you. And he offers us this love and redemption and forgiveness and grace. And I want to say it is an identity that can withstand the strains and the stresses and the pressures of this world and the system. It can handle the anxiety of the system. In a world where we find these identity frames crumbling, what Jesus offers is secure. It is a rock. It is the truth and it is good news. And for the church, for you here today, are we living out this new identity? Have we aligned all our endeavors, all our struggles, all our fears, all our purposes within this framework of seeing the world, within this identity that we can say, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Is that your reality? Is that how you see the world, what you're facing? And yet we keep just slipping into these old ways and we still just exchange that old frame of of self-reliance. And maybe you're struggling with a sin and you just can't feel like you can tell anyone. You've forgotten your new identity is redeemed by God. He's forgiven you. That shame is gone. Maybe you find yourself struggling with prayer and you just feel guilty. I can't come to God. You've forgotten that he's done it all and Christ lives in you and you can come to him. Maybe you've been doubting. Maybe... For you, your identity, you find yourself slipping back into basing on how good you are rather than who God has made you to be. God has saved you to be. It's faith that saves us. And I think this is an important message for us today because 
we, we need to hear this. With, within this identity crisis in our world, we find these disruptions and these transitions putting strain on us as, as, as a church. We need to remember that our identity is not found in our political allegiances. It's not found in our successes. It's not found in our feelings or our tribes. Who we are is defined by who God says we are. And He has redeemed us. He's purchased us out as a people. That all the things that separated us before no longer separate us. He's called us one, a body, a family. He's called us into that. We need to know this. We need that identity realignment like the Israelites. And this is the identity frame that withstands the storms of transitions and disruptions. It's an anchor, an anchor that holds firm and will not fail. Realign your identity. Live by faith in the Son of God. And the Israelites we read in Joshua 5, they did it. They obeyed. They were obedient to realign themselves and remember who they were. They've aligned themselves as God's people, but there was one more lesson that they needed to have. One more lesson that, they, that, that would show that they were truly ready for God's plans for them. So we saw the battle belongs to God, the people belong to God. As we're going to see, the authority belongs to God. So look down at verse 13, the last little part of this chapter. And now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals. For the place where you are standing is holy. Joshua did so. Joshua asks the Lord, whose side are you on? Rather, the question should have been, are the Israelites on the side of the holy Lord? And would they be willing to listen and obey? It's a question of authority. Imagine this. Imagine for a moment you rock up to a job interview. And before you've even gotten the job, you start telling the employer that you can't make the 8 a.m. shift until 10.45am because, you know, you're up late every night and you need to order your skinny almond flat white extra hot but not too hot coffee in the morning and you kind of like to chat to the barista, so you'll be in late. And when the employer says, well, well, maybe you're not fit for this job, that's when you start getting angry and you berate them for being so negative and you ask to speak to the HR director. You haven't even gotten the job and you're not the boss. And they had the authority to say when the shift starts. See, Joshua is confronted with this lesson. Were the Israelites willing to give authority to the Lord as sovereign over the battle? The battle belongs to the Lord. So to give him authority. You know, we can easily slip into this self-centered framework where we invite God into our mission rather than obeying God and joining Him in His mission? Would we be willing to lay down our plans, lay down our purposes for His plans and His purposes? You know, we can cry out to God and say, God, bless us, grace us with that promotion, fix our marriage, find us a boyfriend, make it rain cash. 
But would we be brave enough to pray as Jesus himself prayed, not my will be done, but yours. As we cry out to God and we pray, we say, Lord, your will. I want to be obedient to you. Show me where you are leading. Giving him the authority in our lives. And you know, maybe that's confronting to you to say that Jesus has authority over your lives. But I want to say that an identity frame always requires an allegiance, no matter what it is. If your identity frame is individualism and and self, well then your allegiance then is to self, and self becomes your God. Self becomes your authority. If your allegiance, sorry, if your identity is in work, then suddenly you find yourself, your allegiance to success and, and performance. And if your identity is in, in politics. Maybe you find yourselves giving allegiance to, to power, and, and that's, what you, that's what you serve. That becomes your God. That's what you worship. Identity always requires allegiance. And if our new identity is found in Jesus, and all that, all the, all that I've said before is he welcomes us in, as we have the fullness of life as God's children, in God, as we follow him, it does mean that we say, and you are God and you have the authority over our lives. And that can be hard, absolutely. But the truth and the blessing is, is that he is an authority, he is a king that can withstand and uphold the pressures and the anxieties and the disruptions of the system. If you imagine that identity frame, that's, that's a secure frame to hold us up. So remembering the battle belongs to God, the people belong to God, and the authority belongs to God. We can have an identity that is secure because he is a king that can withhold and withstand the strain and the anxiety of the system. Jesus is a rock, and he's worthy of standing on, worthy of obeying. And we can trust that Jesus is risen from the dead. He is alive. He is the king, and he's filled us with his Holy Spirit, his very presence. So we can say with resolve this morning, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. This life I now live in the flesh, and in the flesh, in this life, as we wait for heaven, there's, there's stuff going on. There's hard things. This life I now live in the flesh We can still say, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So as we find ourselves at this place like the Israelites, moments of transition, moments of disruption, let's have this identity realignment. Who are we? What defines us? And I want you to know this morning that you are God's and he loves you. He's redeemed you. And we have the hope of eternal life brought into relationship with God. So let's, let's rest in his promises. Let's claim him tonight. Let's put our faith in him this morning, I should say. I preach at night most times at 5 p.m., so that's become a habit. Let me pray. Our Lord, we just call upon you now. Amen. And we pray that you would realign and refresh our identities this morning, that we are yours. Lord, we pray for forgiveness when we've searched after other things to give us meaning 
And we know that they are things that will not stand and will not last. But Lord, you are a rock that we can stand on. And so we call out to you in faith, Lord. We thank you that you've forgiven us of our sins. We thank you that you've filled us with your spirit and that we can have life and life everlasting. I pray for those this morning, maybe you're still working this out and still searching, still questioning identity. Lord, I pray for open eyes to see that you are there and that you love them. You have not for a moment abandoned them. You're full of grace, full of truth. So Lord, please continue to lead us and guide us. And we just lay down our fears, uh, the battles that we're going through, the struggles, Lord. We lay them before you. And we know that they belong to you. You are king. You are Lord. And we want to trust you. So we love you, Lord. We worship you. And we put our eyes on you right now. We pray in Jesus' name.